Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the promise and the hope that we have in you. That even as we face a world of tremendous uncertainties, uh, the promise that you gave to your disciples thousands of years ago uh, still echoes down through the ages. And it is a promise that you are a God who is in control. And Father, that you will come. Uh, And Lord, you do come. You come to us in many ways and you reveal yourself to us in many ways. So I pray this morning as we open your word, as we talk together, uh, that you will come in this place to every heart and every mind that's gathered here today, that you might be our teacher and our guide. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is uh, great to be back with you this morning. Uh, Last week, Sherry and I had the opportunity to go away to celebrate our 23rd wedding anniversary, and uh, it's always nice to get away, but it's always good to come home too. So we're glad to be back with you here today. You know, this is a season for anniversaries and uh, weddings and graduations. How many of you uh, have already been to a wedding or a graduation or you're going to one soon? Anybody out there? Yeah, this is that time of year where that happens. Uh, Lots of graduations are taking place, and when you go to a wedding or you go to a uh, graduation, you will find as you walk into that place, there is something that always takes place in our cultures and our traditions, and that is somebody will stand up and say something. Uh, They will have something to say at that graduation service, they'll have something to say uh, in that wedding ceremony. And if you think about it, uh, that commencement address or that valedictory address that takes place at the graduation, I don't know if you can think back to your graduation, but do you remember what was said? I don't. I don't remember what was said. Actually, I can remember thinking, how long is this going to be? Uh, We've all got places we want to go, things we want to do. And if you think about what you've gone through for all your education, however long that was, maybe it was all through elementary and high school. Might be better just to set it down, yeah. (laughs) All through elementary and high school or through four years of college, uh, you, you think, what more can they tell me? I have sat through hundreds, maybe thousands of lectures, and now as I come to this graduation service, I'm going to hear one more 30-minute speech that is supposed to, to make a difference. Or if you go to a wedding ceremony, you, you come in and the couple's standing there and everybody's excited and everybody's beautiful and someone who does what I do stands up and they give a wedding sermon and the bride and the groom are not listening. I know this. I was a groom. We're not listening. Um, so I, I spend about four to, uh, four to eight hours with couples in premarital counseling, and then we get together, and guess what I still do? I still deliver a wedding sermon. I still talk about something that I know they're not listening to. What do we do in these sort of speeches, these commencement addresses, these valedictories, these, these wedding sermons? You know, uh, one of the most important questions we can answer in any, t- any time we're trying to learn or we're trying to teach something is the question, why? We spend a lot of time talking about what and how, and what and how are very important, but unless you know the why, the what and the how seldom matter. And, and so, for example, when I was in high school, um, I really am, am a word person. I'm not a numbers person. So math and science were always a struggle for me, not because I couldn't learn it, but because I just didn't see the point of it. Now that 
all the students out there who are saying amen because maybe you're struggling right now. I'm not trying to give you a pass, but here's what I needed my teacher to do. I needed my teacher to tell me why it was important for me to understand that. They were spending a lot of time telling me what I needed to know and how I needed to do things, but I needed to know why I needed to know that, why I needed to do that. And this is why young children, the number one question of a preschooler is what? Why? 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 They want to know why. Because the why gives us what is important about the what and the how. Now, this relates to so many things in our life, but it also relates to our understanding about faith and about God. We spend a lot of time in church. You've maybe spent a lot of time, if you've grown up in church, in Bible studies or hearing sermons, with people telling you what. What the Bible says, what it means, how to live a godly life, how to follow after Christ. But the Bible also gives us some very important whys. In fact, Jesus gives a lot of whys. And in his final speech to the disciples, he's with his disciples, he knows he's about to be crucified, and he gives what many call his valedictory address or his commencement address to the disciples. They've just spent three years with them and, and they're, about to be, they're about to be shocked by what's going to take place. Their world is going to be shattered and Jesus has given them lots of, lots of what's and lots of how's and in this valedictory address, in this commencement address, he's going to give them some whys and it's important for us to understand the whys. So for the next several weeks, we're beginning a brand new series that I'm calling Final Words. And this will come from this final speech that Jesus made to his disciples from the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and begin to find John chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use the one in front of you. It's on page 827. We'll also put it on the screen behind me. Now, these kinds of speeches in the Bible are, are not unique to Jesus. In fact, these commencement addresses or valedictory addresses uh, were speeches that were given by other biblical characters. So Moses, when Moses was about to leave uh, the children of Israel, he was about to die, he gives a very beautiful speech to the children of Israel and to Joshua, his successor. When Joshua is preparing to, to die, he gives a speech. He calls all of Israel together, and he gives this valedictory speech, this commencement speech. King David, as he's about to pass the crown on to his son Solomon, he gives a valedictory speech, a commencement speech. And here, Jesus is giving one as well. And the purpose behind a commencement address, the purpose behind a valedictory speech or a a wedding sermon isn't to give the what's. Everybody's had a lot of what's. It isn't to give the how's. People have, have been presented all the how's. It's to talk about why. Why do you need to know this? Why is this important? And, and, and how can it help you as you go forward in life from this point forward? So, so hopefully by now you're, you're finding that passage. John actually gives us the why he is writing this entire gospel. Uh, at the very end of the gospel, John says, he says, I want you to know why I'm writing this. He says this, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why. Why I'm writing. Because I want you to know something about Jesus. I want you to know not just what he claimed, but why he claimed it and why it matters for you so that you can have life. Now, John spends a lot of time telling us about the, the what. He spends time giving us the what's early on. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, you can read about the what, what God did. And the claim is pretty simple, that God took on flesh 
and he came to live among us. Now, this is a radical departure from other world religions and, and other worldviews, which all seek to discover ways to get man to God. But that's not the claim of Christianity, and that's not what John is writing about, and that's not what Jesus came to tell us about. Instead, the Gospel of John tells us something very interesting, very different from the rest of world religions. It says, not how does man find his way to God, but in fact, it tells the story of how God himself came and dwelt among us and became a man. Now, this is a radical departure from all other religions. If you look at Greek mythology or Roman theology, any time a god became a man, it was always a mistake. Or it was always the result of some sort of punishment, some sort of cosmic punishment. And so this god would be cast down out of heavens and, and would become a man. And it was either an accident or it was some sort of punishment that was involved. Or if you look at, at a pagan Roman emperor worship or, or any, any uh, nation where they sort of set their king up as a god in Egypt and other countries like that, all of these men were claiming that they themselves were gods or that they would become gods when uh, they died. But God himself, the story of Christianity is that God took on flesh and came to reestablish a connection with his creation, to reestablish a connection with you and with me. Now, how did God do that? That's an important question, and John addresses that as well. And it's not like any of us would have expected in fact, if you and I were to write the story and we were to say, okay, if God is going to reveal himself to humanity, how should he do that? You and I might do something like this. We might let him take on flesh and, and, and let him acquire a position of power, some royal position. He might be a king or a great ruler and have some political influence in the world. Or maybe we would make him a military conqueror. But we find in the Gospel of John just the opposite. That when God took on flesh and came and dwelt among us, he actually came in the most vulnerable form imaginable. He came as a baby, born not to powerful parents, but born to refugees who were living in a country that has been dominated by a global world power in a small town that most of the world had forgotten. Not even born in a house, but born in a barn. This, this was an unlikely way for God to come in among us. So that's how God did it. But what John tells us in John chapter 14 is really important because you may be here today and you may not believe the what of the message of the gospel or even the how of the message of the gospel. But maybe that's because you've never considered the why. And John chapter 14 tells us the why. So by now, hopefully you found John 14. I'll begin in verse 1. John 14, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples this is his final speech before he is arrested and crucified. And he starts out by saying this, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now there was a reason his disciples' hearts were troubled and they were anxious. First of all, Jesus had just told them that he was leaving them and that they were not going to be able to come with him. And so that created a lot of anxiety. But then he also told them that one of them, one of the 12 of them, was going to betray him. So there was a traitor in the midst. So that created anxiety. And then he said, and the rest of you, many of the rest of you will actually deny me. So there's a lot of reason for the disciples to be anxious right now. But what does Jesus follow up by saying? He says, but guys, don't worry about it. Don't let your heart be troubled. And why does he say that? He says that he gives a formula. You believe in God, and because you believe in God, you can also believe in me. Now, that's a pretty radical claim. 
If you are in a conversation with somebody who says something like that to you, you should leave. If they say to you, hey, you believe in God, don't you? And you say, yeah. And you say, okay, then you can believe me. That, that is a radical claim to make. You believe in God, therefore you can believe in me. And then he says, he says this. This is the formula. So if you believe in me, you can have peace in the midst of your difficult circumstances of life. Now that sounds like a great promise, but is it true? Is that really true? Because that is a what that demands a why. If we're going to believe that what, we have to understand why that might be true and the difference it might make. So Jesus goes on in verse 2, and here's what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." Now, I imagine this is a passage of scripture that even if you're not in church much, you've heard this because it's used at a lot of funerals. A lot of, this is a passage that's commonly used at funerals. But what is Jesus actually talking about? He, he is actually making a reference to uh, the way their culture uh, practiced the marriage ceremony. It's very different than the way we practice marriage ceremonies. In, in the first century in a Jewish culture, uh, when a man was betrothed to a woman, there would be a ceremony similar to what we have as a wedding ceremony where the couple would come together before the whole community and they would make their promise to one another. This would be a, 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 a commissioning that, hey, now these two are committed. They're, they're pledged to each other to be married, but they weren't married yet. This is probably uh, the stage of the relationship that Mary and Joseph were in when the angel appeared to Mary and said, behold, you're going to have a child. So, so this was a critical part of, the, of their commitment to each other, this, this engagement, this betrothal ceremony. But from that betrothal ceremony, the bridegroom would go back to his father's house. And he had a particular chore that he had to get finished before he was allowed to go and actually bring his bride home with him as his wife. He had to go and he had to build their, their part of the house. He had to build a room, add a room on to the father's house to make room for the bride. It was the bridal chamber. And so the, the son would go back to his dad's house, and under his dad's supervision, he would be con begin construction on this additional room. And the only way he could go back and get his bride is to receive his father's approval that the room was ready. And the bridegroom himself had no idea when that would be. He had to get everything just right. And when the father would tell the bridegroom, okay, son, it looks great, go get your bride, the bridegroom would immediately leave and would immediately make his way to his bride's home. Meanwhile, the whole town would know what has happened and they're beginning to come out of their houses and follow the bridegroom because guess what's happening right then? They are now married. He can now take his bride back home with him to his house, to this room that he's added on. This is what Jesus was saying to the disciples. Guys, listen, I am going to prepare a place for you, just like a bridegroom does. And when it's ready, and I don't know when that will be, only the Father can tell me when. When it's ready, I will come and I will get you, and I will take you to be where I am. This is a promise that I am giving you. So when the Father says it's ready, the groom goes and gets his bride. And then listen to what happens in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. In other words, you know this. You guys get this. You know where my father lives. And then, and then Thomas said this, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
I love the disciples and their honesty. Because that's me. That's what I would have been that guy. I would have been Thomas. Wait a minute, Jesus, would you just talk in regular language for me? Because I don't know what you're talking about. You, you keep talking in all these illustrations and analogies. Would you help me understand? We don't know where you're going. Cut to the chase. Make it simple. Make us understand what it is that you're discussing. And isn't that ultimately what you and I long for when we begin to talk about things of faith? Everything can seem so abstract and it can seem so difficult for us to fully grasp and and get our hands around and wrap our minds around it. And Jesus says, listen, I am giving you the best illustrations I can because what I am talking about defies human explanations. And so he's talking to the disciples. He's telling them, he's telling them about this. And Jesus is getting ready to give Thomas an answer. He says, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus' answer to Thomas' question may be one of the most offensive things that Jesus said. In fact, if you are not a Christian, if you're here today and you're not a believer, this may be the reason that you're not a believer. This right here. And in fact, let me just give you something. If if you're here today and you're not a Christian because you knew a Christian who was a jerk, that's a terrible reason not to be a Christian. Or because you had a church experience that was really bad, and so suddenly now you say, I can't be a Christian because that church experience was bad. That's a terrible reason not to be a Christian. You had a bad meal once, but you keep eating, right? I mean, (laughs) but what Jesus is getting ready to say is actually so provocative and so challenging that it may be the very good reason why you are here today and you're not a Christian. Listen to what he said in verse 6 to Thomas's question. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an amazingly radical, provocative thing for Jesus to say. Because notice what he didn't say. Jesus didn't say, I know a way. Or he didn't say, I know the way. He said, I am the way. Now compare that to other world religions. If you've studied other world religions and other religious leaders, um, maybe, maybe you've read some of the things that have been written about or been written by the prophet Muhammad or Confucius or none of them made this claim. They all claimed to be able to tell us ways to God, but none of them claimed to themselves be the way to God. And yet Jesus is making that claim. Why would Jesus make such an outrageous claim? Let me just give you a few, few possibilities. The first possibility is that he was a liar. He just lied. He knew it wasn't true. He knew that he wasn't the way, but he said it anyway. So Jesus could be a liar. That could be one possibility. Now, that doesn't sit well with any of us. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, that probably doesn't sit well with you because you appreciate some of the things that, other things that Jesus said. So one possibility is that he's a liar. Another possibility is that he was crazy. In other words, he believed that that was true, but it, of course, couldn't be true. And so Jesus had lost his mind. And, and probably deserved to be institutionalized like his family kept wanting to institutionalize him throughout the gospel account. So he was a liar, he was crazy, or the third option, and it's the only other option, is that he was telling the truth. Those are the only options we have when we consider the claim of John 14, chapter 6. Listen to what he says. Listen to what, how he goes on from there. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. 
from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip, here we are. This is us again. Ready? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Come on, haven't there been times in your life where you've just thought, if there is a God, and if he knows who I am, and if he knows my circumstances, if he would just show me that he, he exists and that he knows my circumstances, that would be enough for me right now. If I just had some belief and some hope that God actually existed and that God actually cared about my circumstances, that would be enough. And that's exactly what Philip is saying right here. Much like Moses said in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses was at a very difficult, difficult part of his journey, and, and he was having this conversation with God, and he said to God, God, would you just show me your glory? If you just show me yourself, that'd be enough for me right now. I mean, all these other problems, if it would just be enough for you to show yourself to me, then the most amazing thing happens. In John chapter 1, John the apostle says something incredible says something that had never happened before. Because God's answer to Moses had been, Moses, you can't handle my glory. I would say that in my best Jack Nicholson impersonation if I had one. But Moses, you can't handle it. But then in John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, John says this, and we have beheld God's glory. We've seen him. We've seen him with our eyes and we've touched him with our hands. We've eaten with him. We've experienced him. We've seen his glory. So Jesus goes on and listen to what he says. This is an amazing, an amazing claim. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, Philip, if you can't see it by now, you've been with me for three years. If you can't see this by now, Philip, if you haven't heard it in my teachings, at least look at the things that I've done. There are blind people who can now see. There are lame people who can now walk. There are deaf people who can now hear. There are leprous people who have now been cleansed. And Philip, have you so quickly forgotten? There there were dead people who are now alive. If you don't believe the things I'm saying, at least look at the things that I've done. Jesus is saying to the disciples, to all of them, he says, I am as close as you will ever get to seeing God. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know what God would say, listen to me. If you want to know what God would do, watch me. I am the way to find a connection with God, the connection that you have been looking for. The union of your soul with your creator is found through me. It's me you're looking for. Is this an exclusive, arrogant claim? Is this statement that radical that it would, it would challenge us? Uh, maybe in, in, a, in a 21st century culture, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? That the only way to find and connect with God is through him? And if that is the claim, why should we believe it? Because that sounds awfully exclusive and awfully arrogant. But listen to what Jesus said in the context in which he said it. 
What had Jesus just done? Jesus had just knelt down and washed the feet of the disciples. What is Jesus just about to do? He's just about to be stripped of his clothes. He loses all his worldly possessions. And he's about to die willingly on a cross. Now, and I would ask you this. Does that sound like the actions of an arrogant person, of a narcissist? Does it sound to you like someone who would do those actions would then make such an arrogant claim? Now, don't get me wrong. There have been many Christians in many churches who may be arrogant in the way they present these words about Jesus. And let me just give you an indication. Maybe some of you have encountered people who do this, that that they project this idea that Jesus is the way because he's my way. Ultimately, saying that anything that they believe must be the truth and the only way of thinking. Now, that is arrogant, and that is narrow-minded, and that is bigoted. And with that line of thinking, you could say that could be true of any world religion and any, any faith claim. Muslims could say that. Hindus could say that. Buddhists could say that. They could make the same claim, that because this is what I believe, it is the only way to believe. But Jesus did not say, listen, he did not say that Christianity or being Baptist or Catholic or Presbyterian is the way, any more than he said any religious system is the way to find God. In fact, what he said is, I am the way. That it's not through a religious philosophy or system or thinking or teaching, but it's through a relationship. It's through knowing me. But there's another reason why we should consider believing this radical claim about Jesus to be true because of what took place. See, anybody can say that I am the way to the Father. Anybody can say I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to get to God is through me. But you have to consider what took place next. Jesus, who had claimed all along that he was the perfect sacrifice of God, the perfect lamb of God, come and taken on flesh, died on the cross for the sins of the world. Anybody could make that claim. But three days later... He was raised from the dead. And so the evidence that we need to know that the claim that Jesus made was true is found in one historic event. That historic event is the resurrection. If the resurrection took place, then the claims of Jesus are also true. If the resurrection did not take place, then Jesus must be a liar or a lunatic. Those are the only options that we have. So if there is a God, and if that God can be known, And if that God wanted to be known, let me ask you this. How would you imagine an infinite God revealing himself to a finite man? How would you do that? If you were to write the story, how would God reveal himself to us? Now, we all have ways in which we try to find God. Attempts, ways that we attempt to find God. Let me just cover a few of these and My guess is everybody in this room uh, who is a little bit older has tried all of these ways to find God. The first thing we do is we try to find God through our experiences and our circumstances. We look at our experience and we say, oh, God was in that experience. I I felt God's presence. I saw God move in a particular way. And, and, And maybe that's true. But here's the problem with our experiences and our circumstances. As we get older in life, we reinterpret our circumstances, don't we? So let me give you an example about this. When you were a kid, maybe a teenager, you thought your parents were evil and oppressive. And then you became a parent. 
And you found yourself saying the exact things that you swore you would never say to your children. Why is that so? Because your perspective changes as you get older. Your perspective changes. Think about this. Think about a time in your life when you look back and you prayed based on a circumstance. God, if you would only give me that job. God, if you would only give me that spouse that I'm looking for. And it didn't happen. And you were devastated. You were totally disappointed. Only 10 years later, you look back and you think, I'm so glad God didn't answer that prayer. I'm so glad God didn't give me what I want. You see, our circumstances and our experience may point us to God, but the reality is the older we get, we constantly reinterpret those circumstances and those experiences. Here's another way we try to find God. We try to find him through religion. And religion is great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously, I want you guys to come every week, come back. I mean, you should use religion a little bit, at least, you know, enough to come here. But let me tell you what's wrong with religion. Religion offers systems for understanding God. And if God is truly infinite, how can man ever design a system that fully captures the essence of God? We can't do it. And so we constantly find things that don't fit in our religious systems. Let me give you some historic examples. Back uh, not too long ago, just four or five hundred years ago, uh, the church, religious systems, decided that, you know what, the world is flat. The world is flat. And not only is the world flat, the earth is the center of the universe. And people, people who didn't believe that, were silenced or tortured or put to death because they could, because the religious system didn't leave any room for science. It didn't leave any room for human discovery. So what happened over time? We came to understand that, guess what? The world is round, and it's not the center of the universe. So religious systems sometimes can even lead us astray, and maybe even on a more personal level. Maybe you've been a part of a religious system where you were just sure that in order to be a, a true Christian, you had to be a Democrat, Some of you were part of churches where maybe in order to be a real Christian, you had to be a Republican. Somehow politics got all mixed up in religion and what you believed. And and, and you had a hard time differentiating uh, your religion and faith in God from the current political, uh, political circumstances that were around you. Because if you're honest, politics were preached far more than the gospel was preached in those contexts. So religion may have led you astray if you didn't necessarily agree with the politics of your pastor at the time. What about this? Maybe it was a personal situation, a family strife. Maybe there was a divorce, and the people in your church didn't know how to handle that. They didn't know how to respond to that. They didn't know whose side to take, and so they were silent. Or maybe maybe a pregnant teenager, uh, and, and the church didn't have room for that in their, in their theology. They didn't have a place to put that. Maybe you had a brother who came out of the closet and was gay and the church didn't know how to respond to that. They didn't know what to say to that. So the religious system left you short. It left you wanting something. It taught you a lot about God. It pointed you to things about God. But, but it also left you knowing that there was something else that you couldn't fully grasp. You couldn't completely find God through a religious system. Another thing that we look at to find God is through nature. And nature is wonderful. I talk to people all the time who go, oh, my, my, my church is, you know, my church is nature. I go out and I, okay, that's fine. You can see God in nature. I mean, after all, it's his created order. And on a macro level, it gives us a picture of who God is. But if you go down to a micro level, re- nature is dangerous. Nature means that the strong always devour the weak. 
nature is graceless. And so nature leaves us wanting something more about God. And another thing we do to try to find God is we will look at our inner self. You know, I just find God within. There's a divine spark within me. But the problem with that is we are always changing. We are always growing. And if there's not a truth that is outside of myself, then ultimately I am saying I am the way, the truth, and the life. That it's me, which is far more arrogant than what Jesus has claimed. I mean, unless you're going to pull off your own death and resurrection, that's a dangerous thing to think about yourself. That somehow your inner spark is enough. So Jesus' answer, I am the way, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, it is through a relationship not through any religious teaching or religious experience, not through, uh, not through anything else that we may find in nature or in our circumstances or experiences. Uh, and no other religious teacher made these claims. Jesus said, is it exclusively through a relationship with me? Because I am in the Father and the Father is me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to connect with the invisible God, you connect with me. Jesus did not come to give us information about God. He came to be the visible image of the invisible God. And that's a very different way to think about Jesus. He was not just another religious teacher. He was not just another world religious leader. Andy Stanley says it this way, Jesus did not claim to have the best explanation about God. He claimed he came to be the best explanation of God. That's why he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, and it not be an arrogant, outrageous claim, but it be the truth. The author C.S. Lewis said that our pursuit of God often looks like somebody who lives in the basement of a building trying to know a God who lives on the upper floors. That somehow if we could just penetrate through all the floors, we might begin to know this God. He said that's the wrong way to think about knowing God. In fact, the, the, way to, the proper way to think about it would be as if, as if Shakespeare wanted Hamlet to know him. If Shakespeare wanted his character Hamlet to know him, the playwright, the only way he could do that is if Shakespeare were to write himself into the play so that Hamlet could come to know him. I don't know how many of you are movie buffs or enjoy watching movies, but uh, the, the producer and director writers, Quentin Tarantino and Woody Allen, their movies all have something in common. Uh, th- those producers and those directors often cast themselves in the movie, that they become a part of the storyline. That's exactly what God has done for us. The mystery writer from the early part of the 20th century, Dorothy Sayers, uh, she had a leading character in her series of mystery novels. His name was Whimsy. He was her, her hero in all the stories. And in one case, she wrote this, this character, Whimsy, into a corner. And it looked bad, like Whimsy could not escape this corner. And so Dorothy Sayers introduced a brand new character, a female heroine named Harriet Vane. And Harriet stepped in and rescued Whimsy from definite destruction. Dorothy Sayers never married, and everything about Harriet Vane paralleled Dorothy Sayers' life. College professor, single, never married. And many people think that at the end of these books, uh, Dorothy Sayers had Harriet Vane marry Whimsy. That she, she fell in love with Whimsy, and she wrote herself in the story so that they could be together, that they could be united. Listen, why did God take on flesh, and come to live among us? It's an important question. Why would he do that? Because he wants you to know him. 
He wants to be in a relationship with you. God, the author and the creator of life, wrote himself into the story. Not just the big story, but he's writing himself into your story. He came to rescue us from imminent danger, imminent death, so that we might be united with him for all eternity. Jesus came to each of us and offers us union with God. A God who wants an intimate relationship with you. So listen, listen. If you are here, and you are searching for God. And you're, you're searching through religious rituals and, and routines. And, and that, that's good. Maybe you're searching through nature and that's fine. Maybe you're, maybe you're searching through exploring, uh, exploring your circumstances and experiences or, or being introspective. All that is good, but it all falls short. Because God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask you today, have you ever carefully explored Jesus? Not what people say about Jesus, not what the church has said about Jesus, not what people who do what I do say about Jesus, but for yourself, have you ever explored the claims of Jesus on your own to see, is he a liar, a lunatic, or is he my Lord? I've got a challenge for you today, and that's just this. I want to challenge you to, to take one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, the first four books of the New Testament. I'd pick one of them, pick any one of them, and just read it through from beginning to end. They're all short. It won't take you long. It could take you a week if you just read a couple chapters every day. And I want you to make a list of the things that Jesus said about himself. No interpretation on my part, no other scholar or theologian's interpretation. What did Jesus say about himself? And then ask yourself this question Is this the man? that has revealed God to me. And if you're here today, and maybe you've been searching for God, or you've lost sight of God, you know that Jesus is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life, but somehow you've lost sight of him, let me just challenge you to get back to the words and the teachings of what Jesus said about himself. And to ask yourself, is this the God I'm looking for? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. We're going to sing a song in just a moment um, called Nothing Holding Me Back. And, uh, and the words of the song, nothing are holding me back from you. And I wonder this morning as you come uh, to worship, as you come into church, what is holding you back? What's holding you back? Is it, is it just a, a cultural, an intellectual bias that you have? That maybe you've discounted the claims of Jesus because... Uh, of the way they've been obscured or, or maybe manipulated by religious leaders and teachers. Maybe you've been looking inside. Maybe you've been looking in nature, but, but you know there's something lacking in that pursuit. What's holding you back? This morning, this morning, would you just open your minds up for just a few days, maybe a few weeks, and consider what Jesus said about himself? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you wrote this story different than we would have written it. We thank you that you, who are beyond our ability to comprehend and understand, have written yourself into the story of humanity in such a real way that we could, that we could see what God is like. We could see what you're like. We could hear what you would say. We could, we could understand what you would do. And Father, even though we're removed from the earthly existence of Jesus by 2,000 years, the stories and the message of Jesus still find their ways into our hearing today. 
And Lord, I trust that if they are true, that the words would penetrate our hearts and our minds, maybe to the point that we would not be able to escape them this week. Father, reveal yourself to us. Thank you that you loved us so much that you would want to be united with us. Thank you that you do come and show yourself to us and you have come and shown yourself to us and you will come again and reveal yourself to us. Lord, reveal yourself to us even now, for we pray it in Jesus' name.